Father, uh, we have a hard passage, difficult for lots of folks to um, grasp uh, ahead of us. So we need your help desperately. We need to understand your, your yourself. We need to understand your ways. So help us to understand your word. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Romans chapter 9. I When I first started teaching Romans was a time when I didn't even know Romans. <laughs> I, I was invited to Falls Creek, Oklahoma. Uh, the there's a there was a huge youth camp there at one time it was the largest youth camp in the world um, and they'd have 15,000 kids a summer wow. at the place so down in southern Oklahoma in the hills down there and uh, my father-in-law who was trying to get me tied in to his denomination um, I had I had been uh, licensed to preach in 1971 and he wanted me tied in with the denomination well so he got me appointed to teach the book of Romans uh, <laughs> at Falls Creek Baptist encampment and there were all of six children and kids who ca- who came <laughs> and, and they looked like they were as bored as they could be the only resource I, I was fresh out of the army just just got out in on June fifteenth of nineteen seventy three, uh, so fourteenth on uh, June seventy three, and this was sometime in July. I, I had no resources. I had no commentaries. I had no training. The only thing I had was a Schofield reference Bible, <laughs> and so I was doing the best I could with that. And boy, it, it I'm sure people found that eminently forgettable. <laughs> but the first outline I had of Romans was five points. Sin, salvation, sanctification, sovereignty, and service. Sin, chapters 1 to 3. Salvation, chapters 4 to... Um, how far would that go? 4 to... 4 and 5. Sanctification, 6 and 7, 8. Sovereignty, 9, 10, and 11. And service, 12 to 18. 12 to 16. So that was my outline that I worked with for a number of years in teaching Romans. I, I think I learned more talking about these things than I do studying. But uh, somehow it, it triggers my thinking better than just reading and studying. But over the years, I've come to a different view of the outline of the book, and we've been discuss- discussing this right along uh, we've treated chapters 9 to 11 as a kind of parenthesis in the book for all the, all the time I've been thinking about Romans. Uh, so you take this kind of moment off to talk about something else, chapters 9 to 11, whatever it is we're talking about precisely, and doesn't directly relate to chapters 1 to 8 or to chapters 12 to 15. Uh, I was in a uh, an oral comprehensive <laughs> oral comprehensive exam uh, as a as one of the examiners uh, one day when uh, in, in Bible exposition the, the Bible exposition department and the doctoral degree the goal is to be able to discuss 
each book of the Bible synthetically. That is to say, not analyze it, but synthesize it. What is the overall message? How do all the parts fit into that message? And every PhD in Bible exposition up to just the recent years has written what's called an argument of every book of the Bible, Um, (laughs) which is a rather remarkable achievement, frankly. Um, But it's kind of like a doctoral dissertation. Uh, it's, It's your first stab at real scholarship. And it's not necessarily going to be your best stab at real scholarship. <laughs> so, so, but but uh, one of the profs in the uh, in the uh, exam was a guy named Harold Honer. Harold was the chairman of the PhD committee. He was a New Testament Greek professor, but he had gotten his his uh, degrees at Dallas in Bible exposition. And so uh, he later went on for postdoctoral work and so forth. But uh, he was a real, he, he was really a lion for uh, exegesis and so on, wrote a massive major commentary on the book of Ephesians. But uh, he said to the candidate who was being examined, uh, why does Romans 9 follow chapter 8? What is there in chapter 8? that elicits the discussion in chapter 9. And I thought, I've never asked that question. Why haven't I ever asked that question? That's a fundamental question. And the guy was just at a loss. Uh, It's okay on a doctoral comprehensive oral exam to say I don't know, just don't say it too often. (laughs) One of the goals of a doctoral comprehensive is to find out what the limits of your knowledge are so they can keep probing out beyond on written exams, you can only answer the question that you're given. You can't, you can't respond and, and probe a little further with the written exams. So the guy really didn't have an answer. And, and the other, there, there are usually four profs on the, on the uh, panel for this poor lamb being brought to slaughter. <laughs> uh, and, and they're really not trying to disqualify him. They're trying to show that he is qualified. That's, that's the whole point. But uh, you feel like you're just being hung out to dry at times. And the guy was, he's kind of stammered around, didn't come up with much of an answer. And in fact, none of the rest of us had any answers either. So when the exam was over and the man was dismissed, we said, okay, Harold, what's the answer? Well, look at the end of chapter 8. Um, especially verses 35 to 39. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I proposed reading this last week, not who, but what shall separate us from the Lord. Because the answer, the proposed answers he gives are, are events, not uh, persons. So what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation... How does it? Where does it go? I've lost my place. Um, uh, shall tribulation or 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 um, <laughs> narrow circumstances? Like what do you have? Distress, Distress or persecution, or, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. These are events that could come into your life, and and some years later, I'm sorry, some years earlier. 
I had already asked the question. I mentioned this to you last week. Um, at Evangel Baptist Church, sitting on the platform, preparing to preach, which meant that I was less than five minutes to, till time to preach, I thought, why should a sword separate me from the love of Christ? What is there about a sword that would say? And, and I thought then, I, I, I wonder if these are covenant curses, and that's what I talked about last week. These are covenant curses. These are the things that signified to Israel that they were separated from the love of God. Do you follow this? And in Leviticus 26, the goal is given for the covenant curse. It's not to beat Israel up. The covenant curse is to, is to lead them to repentance. Um, so uh, he goes on to say, verse 36, these are not now covenant curse. Uh, in all these things, uh, as it is written, um, for your sake we are put to death all day long. We can't, so they're no longer covenant curse. They are what God is doing with his people. And I, boy, I'm, I'm studying Colossians for Sunday school. And, and this whole issue of suffering is strong in those first two chapters that I've been working on the last couple of weeks in Colossians. This is, it's just forceful. Um, uh, God intends the, there's an old song we used to sing <clears throat> the way of the cross do you remember the song the way of the cross leads home the way of the cross leads home are you with me that's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew what portion? Um, uh, where? I can't now recall. It was in my minute mind a minute ago, but it's gone. Um, uh, whoever would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. The cross is not... Um, penalty for sin. It's It's suffering for the sake of the kingdom as Jesus did. It turns out that suffering for the sake of the kingdom is every kind of suffering that God allows into our lives, uh, but um, it's suffering for the sake of the kingdom. I can't get to the kingdom in a way that Jesus didn't walk. I have to go the path that Jesus took to get to the kingdom, and so the path that Jesus took is through Calvary, yes, to the um, ascension. Uh, and that's the way we walk, too. The, the issue then is, he says in verses 38 and 39, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, and, and I don't know, I think we were getting a little short on time, so I didn't deal with this very well, do you have neither nor 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 right that's a that's important we don't pay attention to these things very well uh, in chapter one there is a list uh, that I want you to see it's at the end of chapter one uh, let's see where is it specifically um, it begins in verse 29 
and goes through verse 31. Look at that list. There's not a single conjunction there. This is called ascendeton. The word in Greek for, for conjunction is syndeton, S-Y-N-D-E-T-O-N. Ascendeton is like amoral. Somebody who's amoral has no morals. Yes? So ascendeton would mean that there are no, no conjunctions. Polysyndeton, you know the word poly or the prefix poly. Uh, polyhedron is a multi-sided yeah, uh, object. Uh, so polysyndeton would be many conjunctions. Does that make sense? And you say, okay, that's nice to know, but is there any significance in that? And the answer is yes. Rhetorically, the, the list in chapter 1 at the end is saying everything there is important, but it's not so important that you stop and define every term that's used here. The point's at the end. So verse 32 then These are the ones who, though they know the righteous decree of God that those who do such things are worthy of death, not only do them, but they take pleasure in them. And that's that's the lowest bottom of the the degradation of the human race and sin. You, You see the point? So when you have an ascendetic list, a list with no conjunctions, go to the end, that's where the point's going to be. And so if you're teaching Bible study, and you have a list that has no conjunctions, say, look, folks, this the rhetoric of this, the way a speaker would use this is to go quickly through all kinds of things, but the point's going to be at the, the end, so let's spend our time at the end. Is that, is that also true with the list that Paul gives in Galatians 5, then? Yeah. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, goodness, yeah. Yeah. The, the issue is that all of this is there, but... Um, but the the points at the end. Uh, so in chapter eight, verses thirty nine and following, thirty eight and thirty nine, we're supposed to stop and consider every one of the items in the list. So I am persuaded that neither death, death cannot separate us from the love of Christ, which is in in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yes, nor life. I wouldn't think that life could. Uh, nor um, nor angels. I, I don't think Gabriel or Michael are trying to separate me. But principalities might. Yes? Uh, nor things present, nor things to come. When you're dreading things that are coming in our, in our nation's future, um, they can't separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. They are the road to uh, the kingdom. Are you with me? So I need to know that and know that God is using it to produce the likeness of Christ in me. So Romans 8, 28, 29, and 30, yes, especially 28 and 29, all things work together for good, but the all things that work together for good are all sufferings in the context, and the good is being conformed to the image of his his son. That's verse 30, I guess it is. Um, uh, Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers. That word, do you have powers? Yeah, could be translated miracles. Uh, This is the standard word for miracles in the Gospels. Um, So it could be miracles that that demonic powers are able to accomplish. You you know this. You've seen 
Connecticut Yankee in the in in a King Arthur's court, perhaps with who, who was that? Bing Crosby was it was in that movie. Uh, he goes back and he he brings early 20th century technology back to <laughs> to King Arthur's court, and they think it's magic. They think he's a magician. Um, demons are able to do things that to us look like miracles but they're lying miracles as he as he calls them elsewhere so neither angels nor principalities nor nor height nor depth you can't go high enough and you can't go low enough to be separated from the love of god that's in christ jesus our lord nor any other creation and and people will say those who are arminian will say yes but we can jump out of the out of the love of God. Are you a creation of God? Are you created by God? Then you can't separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you follow this? Shall be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And you will say to me, well, what has that to do with chapter 9? That chapter 9 is asking a question. A fundamental question. The fundamental question is, what about Israel? Because if we can't be separated from the love of God, that's in Christ Jesus our Lord, and Israel has been separated from the love of God, then maybe we could be too. So Paul, isn't Israel evidence that your statements in chapters 30, or in verses 35 to 39, is open to question? And the answer is no. And we shall see that as we go. So in chapters um, uh, 9 to 11, we are going to, we are going to uh, ask five questions and then answer them. The first question, this is, this is very important that you get these five questions down. They're not original to me. I didn't come up with these. I don't know where I got them at this point. When you read something and you want to quote it, then the first time you quote it, you quote it and you say, as G.K. Barrett says in his commentary, the second time you quote it, you say, somewhere someone said, by the third time it's yours and you can quote it for yourself. <laughs> so I, I, I virtually know nothing by my own... <laughs> By my own thinking, pretty much everything I've learned, I've seen in a book someplace, and I think, gosh, that fits this text so well, and it makes the context work. Uh, it's it, it, the whole the whole process of Bible study is like doing a crossword puzzle. I love crossword puzzles. I just don't do them because I would take all my time doing crossword puzzles and not not doing other things that are more useful. But one of the ways you know when you make a guess at an answer on a crossword puzzle, one of the ways you can validate it is the extent to which it helps you fill in other... So if you're going across with your answer, if you're going up and down with it, you're, you're getting help on that, then you know you were on the right track with, mm-hmm. with that guess that you made. Does this make sense to you? Well, that's what happens in Bible study. When you come up with a hypothesis about what a passage means... If the rest of if the if the context becomes elucidated, it becomes clearer because of that insight. Then you know you're on the right track. So these five questions grow out of 
this point in chapter 8, verses 38 to, 35 to 39, um, we can't be separated from the love of Christ, but Israel was. Does that undermine your assertion, Paul? And his answer is no. Um, there, there are five, five steps to the argument here. First step is God has hardened unbelieving Israel. If the essence of sin is unbelief, uh, one of the ways God judges sin is called talionic justice. Talionic justice is, yeah, but it's it's the punishment in the form of the of the violation that's committed. Just to put it in more general terms, so the issue is if their sin is unbelief then he turns them over to unbelief. He hardens them so that they do exactly what they want to do. So God has hardened unbelieving Israel. Second, Israel rejected God's righteousness. They they really didn't want the righteousness God offered. They want their own righteousness. It seems like the same pattern that we saw with Pharaoh after the seventh plague. Precisely. Yeah. Precisely the same issue. Uh, and and we'll, we, we, I think we said this back in chapter 1, but it will bear repeating. Hardening here doesn't mean... Yeah, we did say this in chapter 1. Hardening here does not mean taking wonderful people and making them worse. It means taking people and, and removing the restraints from their, from their um, uh, upon removing the restraints upon their ability to act out the wishes that they have. So Pharaoh didn't have any inclination to submit to God. It would have been the grace of God that would have enabled him to do that. But he's showing the extent that unbelief will go to by turning him over to his own desires. I think I'm a God and you're slave God can't command me because I rule him. And so he acts that out and God removes progressively the restraints until Pharaoh's army is destroyed and Pharaoh is humiliated. Uh, so this is what we're talking about in God's hardening Israel. Uh, he re- he God, they, they rejected God's righteousness. The righteousness God offered and this would be it would be very valuable for us to have worked through the book of Genesis before we come to Romans. I just point out to you, folks, if you tur- turn in your Bible to the very first biblical text, you get past all the preface and all that. The first biblical text, what is the first biblical text in the Bible? In the beginning. Well, just what's the name of the first biblical text? Genesis. Genesis. And Romans comes way down the line. Yes? So, uh, the, the, uh, I, I, I want to write a book. I've got to get past this Hebrews 2.10. I'm still st- struggling with that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm getting close, but I'm not very... I, I still have some more research I've got to do on it. But I want to write a book on faith in the book of Genesis. And I want to do it on... Um, Eve, um, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So there'd be six chapters in the book. 
It's not going to be a commentary on Genesis, but it's going to be defining faith in the fall, as we did when we looked at what faith is way back at the beginning of our study. Um, Eve believed the serpent, and she did not believe the word of God. Yes? So her sin was not eating the fruit. Her sin was believing the word of the serpent and rejecting the word of God. Which means unbelief. Unbelief. So uh, the disobedience was the... I, I, I hesitate to use this word, but I don't mean it to be a joke. Her, her disobedience was the fruit of her sin. Disobedience is not sin. It flows from sin. What are you thinking? Contemplating what yeah. you said. Yeah. <laughs> See, Trying to. especially as Americans, we have put so much emphasis, as American Christians, we put so much emphasis on obedience and and avoiding all those forms of sin that are out there in the world uh, um, that that becomes the be all and end all of our gospel presentation. Uh, are you a sinner? Oh, I don't think so. Well, have you broken this commandment? Have you broken that commandment? Have you broken the third commandment? Yes? Uh, and the answer is yes, but that's fundamentally irrelevant because I have two. See? So the issue is a matter of faith. And we think that makes it too airy-fairy. It makes it too um, ambiguous. But it's because we don't know what faith is. If faith, at its essence, is loving God with all your heart, soul, and strength, then um, in, in Psalms, um, there are two statements. I think it's in Psalm 14. There are two statements. The wicked, in his heart, says, in, in all his thoughts, there is no God. Now, he's not a theoretical atheist. He's a practical atheist. Because a few verses later, he says, um, God has covered his eyes. He will not see. So God just doesn't concern himself with our actions. God's business is forgiving sin, so I'll just sin more. So Romans chapter 5 and 6 and 7, I'll just sin more so I can get more grace. Are you with me here? So if we put our focus on behavior patterns, then we mistake the gospel entirely. The gospel, I'm I'm working on Colossians 2 for Sunday. And um, let let me turn over there just for a moment. So Jim would be correct in saying, I suppose, that, that when a Christian sins, he's a theoretical. Yeah. He's acting as if God doesn't matter to this decision. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, what am I after here? Colossians. Colossians, oh yes. Um, verse 8. Beware lest anyone should become, uh, should take you captive through philosophy and vain deceit. Now, philosophy is a word that's used in the first century for religion. And he's not here thinking about Stoics and Epicureans and, 
and uh, what's the other group? Uh, uh, I can't think. Um, he's not talking about philosophical systems. He's talking about religious systems, probably. So through philosophy and vain deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the, and what do you have, the... Basic elementary principles of the world and not according to Christ. Um, let's see. Um, uh, maybe I should go to Galatians 4, 3 and 9. At the same word, first principles or basic principles, occurs twice in Galatians 4, verses 3 and 9. Ah, yes, this is where I need to be. Um, Such also are we, were we, when we were... uh, uh, Chapter 3, chapter 4, verse 3. Children. Children. This is the word that's translated uh, infants elsewhere. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, for example, it's translated infants. When we were babies, we were kept under slavery to the what do you have elements Elements of the world same word that we have in in Colossians there uh, to the elements of the world Uh, when but when the fullness of time came God sent forth his son uh, born of a woman born under the law that he might redeem those who are under the law so what are the elements of the world here that we're redeemed from In verse 5, what are the... Judaistic practices. Not Judaistic practices. It's the the law. Do you follow this? Because Judaism required more than the law required. But he's talking about the law here. Um, What's the definition of the law there? Law of Moses. Okay, but the three elements or Ten Commandments, the sacrificial system in the Levitical priesthood... Yeah, the whole thing. So all three. the whole shooting match. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay. Um, I get confused sometimes. Of course. Talking about just the Ten Commandments, or is talking about yeah. the whole system. Well, and the word law is used very broadly in the Bible, in the New Testament. Yeah, so it's it's Bible. yeah, it creates. You have to let the context determine every time. But he goes on. Um, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law so that he might redeem those under the law, so that we might receive the adoption. Um, Because uh, you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son uh, into your hearts, into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave. So if you're under the law, you are a slave. You are no longer a slave, but a son. But a son, and if a son, an heir through God. But then, when you did not know God, uh, you were enslaved to those that are not by nature gods. And he's talking about to, here now to Galatians. But the Galatians, do, do you know the problem behind Galatians? What, what's the problem? Do you know? stepped away from the gospel that Paul had preached and they wanted to include circumcision. As a okay, they, yeah. The problem is they've got Judaizers there 
who are trying to get them back into the law. You, you can't be a, ch- a child of God unless you're circumcised, and as in Acts 15, and keep the, the law of Moses. All right? So, um, uh, but, the, but the Galatians were idolaters, too. So you got both problems. Uh, you either want to go back to the law or you want to go back to your idols. But now, having known God, or rather having been known by him, or being known by him, uh, you have returned again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you want again to enslave yourselves. Uh, you are keeping days and months and seasons and years. Well, what kind of system has a, an observe, observation of days and months and seasons and years? Mosaic law. Mosaic law. It's not Judaism as such. It's the Mosaic Law. You follow this? So, um, uh, so he says, verse 11, I'm afraid for you, lest um, I have labored in vain somehow with you. The, the issue then is um, we have a hope, but that hope is on the other side of suffering because the way of the cross leads home. Okay? So, um, we are going to be facing objections to grace. Grace is hateful to the typical Arminian. They'll also always say something like this. They perhaps won't say it in the same breath as I'm saying it, but they eventually will say it. Yes, we're under grace, but after you've received grace, you must obey. They don't realize that grace is the only enablement for obedience. See, they think somehow we've got to get the law back in. And this is my problem with a lot of Reformed writing on uh, Paul because they've got to get the law back in somehow. Um, uh, Bruce Waltke does the best of this, the best of the ones that I've read or heard, where he says essentially we're under the Ten Commandments and that's true formally but not uh, uh, it's true in form but not in the same strict sense in which he means it because we're not under the Ten Commandments folks the reason I know that is we don't keep Sabbath right am I making sense to you? Mm -hmm. right so what Paul is getting at here is Israel, here uh, we, we came to the second part in introducing chapters 9 to 11. Israel rejected God's righteousness in favor of their own. They're looking for a righteousness that they can say, I did this, I'm righteous. Not a righteousness where I, can, I have to say, Jesus did this, I'm righteous. <laughs> okay. What are you thinking, Terry? Well, I know we've had this discussion before, but um, maybe it kind of goes back to that, can't remember what hymn it's in, but <laughs> prone to wander. Yes. You know it, but I think we just, at least I know, I have a tendency to want to, part of me wants to live under that law system. Uh-huh, okay. yeah. This is right and this is wrong, mm-hmm. and I need to do this. Yes. And I don't need to do this. Yeah. And I know part of it's because that's the way I was brought up. Yes. Even in the church yes. Yeah. 
But but even as an adult, even though I I know better, I, I still find myself kind of mm-hmm. wanting to go back. To yeah. That. And so, you know, I I read you know probably the first time I read Galatians or someone preached on Galatians, I'm saying, "Man, those foolish people!" But <laughs> but I'm right there with. I'm right there with them. Yeah. And and I guess what I'm struggling where I have the struggle is why why do I want to go back to oh this that's a no that's that's a fundamental question and let me give you a fundamental answer it goes right back to the beginning uh, we did this weeks and weeks ago but and therefore it's I wouldn't expect you to remember it until we get started but but um, when God put Adam and Eve in the garden did he know he was going to give them a commandment did he know that if they break the commandment, he was going to judge them severely? Yes. Is he a good God? Yes. Then did he equally, along with the commandment, give them a desire to keep the commandment? I believe so. I think so, too. When, when they sinned, we, we talk about total depravity. And uh, people say, well, I, I can't believe in total depravity because depravity, nobody's as bad as he can be. Right. Um, um, but that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what total depravity is. To, to deprave, in fact, uh, C.S. Lewis said something like that, and I thought he ought to have known better. He was a classically trained scholar. That is, he knew his Latin and Greek better than I do, uh, much better than I. I. I've had a lot of Greek and a lot of Latin, but he knew it a whole lot better than I did. Um, and all you have to do is look up the verb, D-E-P-R-A-V-O, in Lewis and Short, the, the major, uh, the, the old... Um, Fundamental. This was the authoritative Latin dictionary for years and years and years. And under that, you will find a quotation from the poet Terence, <laughs> Publius Terentius Affair. He was, he was from North Africa. Um, in one of his plays, he has a character, I think it's Formio, um, he has a character say, say there is nothing, O Formio, that cannot be made worse by the telling. And the word is de, de prawariere. It's that same verb. Uh, to deprave does not mean to be as wicked as you can be. To deprave means to make something worse. So uh, one of the, uh, there's a, in that same entry on that verb, there is a reference to a medical text that talks about depraved legs. <laughs> <laughs> and you think, what is a depraved leg? Well, a broken leg or a lame leg? What, what, what is there that would make it a depraved leg? It's not yeah, you can't use it for the purpose it was, it was created to, to accomplish. This is the same point that I want to make about if God did give us a desire, and this is inference from Scripture, but I think it's a valid inference. Um, if it's a valid inference, total... Depravity means everything in us is now no longer capable of fulfilling the purpose for which God created it. So everything in me, my mind is darkened, my heart is hardened. Yes, I love all the wrong things. I was created to love God. 
but I love all the wrong things. Um, and everything I want is wrong. See, so the, the issue now is that I still have a desire to keep rules to be acceptable, but it's depraved. I, I can't use it that way, and especially in light of what we saw in chapters 6 and 7 of Romans, it, flesh is, is not sin nature the way I understand it. It's desire for law righteousness. And I can't use law to produce righteousness because in flesh now is what Paul calls indwelling sin that can be dormant, when I feed it grace, when I feed myself grace, but when I feed myself law, it comes to action, comes to life, and produce as acts of sin. Does that help? Yeah. Um, I kind of thought I knew the answer. Yeah, well... I need to feed myself more yeah. grace and less law. <laughs> that's right. I mean, that sounds simple, but, yeah. but that's what... But, and it doing. sounds like you're, you're cheapening, uh, and people call this cheap grace. It's not cheap grace. It's very costly. I think it's easy for us to, to just forget the indwelling sin in our life. Mm-hmm. You know, we just yeah. we're coming to church. We're, we're in the Word. We're you know we, we feel like we're you know our life pattern is growing. You know, in 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 the right way, but still that indwelling sin will go away. It's still there, and I so easily slip back into it. But doesn't that lead to what Paul said? Well, should I sin more so I get more grace? The answer is no, because grace well, never. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Turn, turn back. Turn back to Romans six. Uh, and I mean, that's, that's, if you take away the law, mm-hmm. isn't that the multi-headed serpent in one of those Hercules movies? You know that. Yeah, chopped off one head and another one. Yeah. That, that seems to be yeah. the way that indwelling sin is. Yeah. You've got off your head and another uh, one appears. It's like, how do I ever get rid of this? Yeah, um, um, it's seven, uh, no, it's chapter 6 where I want to be. Uh, verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Absolutely not. Do you not know that to whomever you present yourselves as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of uh, obedience leading to righteousness? Uh, he's, he's not yet clarified sin here. What does it mean yielding yourself to sin? In chapter 7, he's going to do that. Uh, in fact, let's see, does he do it earlier? Um, um, having been set free from sin you've been um, but in chapter 7 he's going to identify sin as indwelling sin and when you feed yourself law rules, commandments whether they be the commandments of the Masonic Lodge or the commandments of the United States Army or the commandments of God it's going to feed indwelling sin, and I can't. I can't get rid of that, short of physical death. Uh, when physical death comes, I will no longer have that problem because I won't be in flesh anymore. All right? The resurrected body is going to be free of that anyway. You see, so the more I, I feed myself law, 
the more that, that's the point at the end of chapter 7 then look at the end of 7 um, verse uh, 21 I find then the law <laughs> or the principle uh, and here's part of our confusion Mark with with Paul and law I find then the law to me who wants to do the good, the evil is present. I delight in the law of God according to the inner man. That should be a good thing. But I see another law in my members, warring with the law of my mind and taking me captive by the law of sin and death, um, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will, me, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And he anticipates his answer of chapter 8 in the, in the first part of verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Then he sums up what he's been saying in chapter 6 and 7. So then, um, um, with my mind, I'm a slave to the law of God, but with my flesh... I'm a slave to the law of sin. So as long as I'm trying to live by the law of God, I'm going to be a slave to the law of sin. So um, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation to to those who are in Christ Jesus. When we're in Christ Jesus, grace comes to work and, and produces righteousness without the necessity of commandments. Now, a question that should come up in this kind of setting, in light of the, the way you posed the, the issue here, is, well, why is the New Testament full of so many commandments then? Isn't that just giving us more laws? And the answer is no. The way I understand it, and, and, and thinking about, uh, by the way, when... The, when I, this is off the subject, but it's on the subject in one sense. When you wrote letters, if you considered them important, you saved them. You saved a copy. And the way you saved letters in the first century was making a codex. This is a codex. You, you probably know that a book of this form is made up of, of numbers of choirs that are sewn together. Are you aware of this? Choir, Q-U-I-R-E. <laughs> so there are, you've done this, you've folded paper. Mm-hmm. And it, it, you can't fold it very much before it becomes too unwieldy. unwieldy. Uh, but you can fold paper, and you can say five or six sheets of paper, and you fold them, and you have a, a, a codex. That was the first form of book that now has issued in this. Yes, Cicero did this in the first century B.C. Uh, and the way you recorded letters in a, in a codex was you wrote the longest ones first and then progressively shorter ones as you go to the end. In the codex form of, of New Testament letters, Romans is always first because it's the longest letter. Um, and so from that point of view, There is no one who has read since Paul wrote the letters. That is, let me say it differently. Since they were collected together, and it seems that they were appears from the evidence to go back at least to the second century A.D., maybe to the first century A.D. But 
but it, uh, but no one read the letters of Paul without reading Romans first. Then Romans is there as the guide to all of the rest of Paul's thinking F- from the beginning. It's not just the order that we happen to get them in by who knows what kind of arbitrary principle. This is the principle that it came in. So I'm expected to read Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and so on, all the way through with the luggage that I pick up in Romans and then 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and so forth. Does this make sense to you? So all of Paul's teaching, then, the commandments in the latter part of his letters, Romans 15, 14, 15, uh, 13, 14, 15, I'll get it right in a minute. 1 Corinthians, all those commandments in there, yes? 2 Corinthians, there are commandments. Galatians, especially the latter part, Ephesians chapters 4 and following, uh, Philippians chapter 3 and 4, Colossians, and so on. All the way through, he gives us basically the the fundamental concepts that he wants us to understand, and then he gives us behavior that's consistent with those concepts. Yes? Um, Then he can't have written the commandments as law. They are... how, how does obedience work in the Christian life? What is the sum total of how obedience functions in the Christian life? Well, if I could summarize what I'm hearing, and I don't know if you're as clear. In my mind, it seems like you're minimizing obedience. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I am. <laughs> well, well but I, see, I, I want to ask a different question before okay. we get there. Okay. How, how does anybody ever obey as a child of God? What what's the mechanism? What is the the process that that goes to work? Your discipline first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your parents, <laughs> the Holy Spirit. The commandments tell us what the Holy Spirit's likely to be doing in our lives, so that we can work with Him instead of against Him. So obedience now becomes an effect, not a cause. So it's a secondary thing, not a primary thing. Well, I would say it's a result. Yeah, but 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 results are always secondary to causes. Right. So it's a secondary thing instead of a primary thing. The so, it pri- should, so it should be minimized. Yeah, in in that okay. in that sense. Right. Okay. Right. Not in the sense of uh, putting it way down the uh, right, right. where where it's of no consequence. Not, not trying to do that. I'm trying to say. I guess you were pushing it down too far. For yeah. Well, okay. see, we are born. We are born Pharisees. That's a true. Well, and as we are born Pharisees, it, you can be a communist Pharisee. You can be an atheist Pharisee. Scientist Pharisee, which, which is synonymous with um, atheist Pharisee these days, uh, or a Baptist Pharisee. Or a Calvinist Pharisee. But we're all Pharisees, and we want to put the law up on top. i got to keep it where it belongs, subordinate to grace. That grace is the way to get to that desire, that obedience that I desire. Because it has to be about me somehow, right? Yeah, it has to be about me and my behavior and my earning and my dignity yes. instead of about the praise of God. In all my work, does this make sense mm-hmm. to you? Yeah. 
Can I show my stupidity? Uh, uh, <laughs> it, we don't want it. If, if we don't get it, it just, exposed uh, here. I've showed by. Show Go ahead, brother. And, uh, I'm just going, you know, uh, Christ with his disciples said, uh, if, you, if you love me, you'll keep yeah. my commitment. Yes. That Go. sounds like obedience. Yes, it does. Which is more, there, there are two clauses there. We call one's a an if clause and the other is a then clause. Which is if more? If you love me. Which is lo, which is logically more important? If you love me. The love. From the from the love flows obedience. the obedience. Which kind of goes back to what you were saying about it being secondary. Yeah. Right. Right. So okay. if I'm understanding what you're saying, you're not saying that obedience in and of itself is not important. No. It's our understanding mm-hmm. of what is obedience. obedience. Exactly. should come as a result of, like Ron just pointed out, that we love Christ. Obedience should be, come as a result that we're working alongside or with the Holy, allowing the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. to work within us. Yeah. So it is a result of that. It's Exactly. Not, that should not be our focus. I need to obey, I need to obey, I need yeah. to obey. It's I obey because I love, I yeah. obey because the Holy Spirit's working in me. So the essential point of teaching application in Scripture is not to get to the behavior change. It's to get to the to the love change. To woo people to love the Lord more and more so that His will becomes preeminent in their lives. Am I making sense? Yeah. I just wish I could figure out why it's so hard to do. Well, because we were born Pharisees. Yeah. I remember Ronnie used to... Say again? I remember Ronnie Stevens used to say that in all his I, I don't even remember that, but... He, he says you, you struggle more with being a Pharisee than you do with being a, I guess, the opposite, libertarian. It's, it's like the guy who's the alcoholic. Do you struggle with alcoholism? No, I enjoy every minute of it. <laughs> Do you struggle with your Phariseeism? No, I enjoy every minute of it. That's the problem. Yeah. I See, um, I forget who defined this this way. Maybe one of you will know the quotation. I, 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 in my mind, it goes back to Thomas Jefferson. The essence of education is teaching people to love the right things, or to, he said, I think, enjoy the right things. And that's what we're about in Bible teaching. It's not getting people to do. It's getting people to love God and see what he has done for us so that they love God. They, they learn to enjoy the right things. What I enjoy as a three-year-old is all wrong things. And what my parents are trying to do as, uh, with me as a three-year-old is to teach me to enjoy the right things. Yes? That's why potty training is so difficult. Because <laughs> why do I have to sit around here for 30, 45, 50 minutes an hour? Why do I have to do that? I'm getting sore, Mommy. I want to get up and go play. Yes, but I enjoy the wrong things. So I must be taught to enjoy the right things. And that's what, in my opinion, folks, I, I, a man took me aside, man from First of Ann, uh, who's no longer there, I'm sure, but um, he said uh, to me one time, you're a good teacher, but you're, you're not quite a great teacher yet, and here's why. You, we need to just tweak your teaching a little bit. It needs to be more practical. No. 
I didn't have the categories to explain it to him then, and he, the explanation I'm giving wouldn't have flown with him because uh, he was a Pharisee. <laughs> uh, we're all Pharisees. Yeah, we're all Pharisees. Well, uh, a good example of when we talk to class about suffering is moving from Phariseeism into to grace. Grace. I don't enjoy suffering. I don't want to suffer. I want to avoid suffering as much as I can. So. I avoid it as much as I can, which means I'm working at cross purposes with the Holy Spirit. Yeah. That's your key to Hebrews 2.10 right there. <laughs> well, Hebrews 2.10 is a different idea. Well, he had to put it, Jesus had to be the trailblazer because we would not do that without him. Yeah, but that's not that's not sanctification there either. Okay. So uh, it's a different idea. I think it's ordination as priesthood. That the verse that talks about Jesus being the captain of our salvation? Uh, it's uh, both he who sanctifies, it's either 10 or 11. Uh, he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Whatever verse that is. It's, oh, that's verse 11. Yeah. Verse, uh, verse 10 where it says that this, this translation, the, to make the captain of their salvation perfect. perfect. Jesus wasn't perfect? I, the next category I've got to deal with is perfection. So uh, what does that mean? But the, the issue here then, folks, is the primary application I should make from every passage of Scripture is, do you not see how lovable God is? Can you not love such a person? And when I get, when, when the Holy Spirit works that love in our hearts, there's no problem about our obedience. There is immaturity, Mark, and, and when, when I'm immature, I love somebody, but I don't know how to express it. Yes? So the, the direction is there for immature. All of us are immature. So the direction is there telling us what loving God looks like. Uh, I, was, I said to Jen one day, we were having, we, 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 we got married on the anniversary of D-Day. And about 25 years of our marriage were D-Day invasion, and I wouldn't even suggest who the Nazis and who the Allies were. But, but, but one day we were having one of those D-Day discussions, and Why did she hit you. Glad <laughs> <laughs> to ask later. <laughs> I said, I, I, she said, "Why are you doing that?" And I said, "Because I'm trying to express love to you." She said, "That doesn't express love to me." And I thought, what's wrong with her? Her. <laughs> it wasn't what was wrong with her. It was what was wrong with me. I didn't know her well enough. Do you, does that make sense? Didn't know her well enough to express love to her. I needed guidance. I needed education in who Jan is. Same thing. I'm having an education about who God is and what kinds of things please Him. So when I come to love God more and want to please Him more... Then I can go find out oh, what, what pleases him. What are the things that please him? I want to do this because it will please God. Do, do, do you see the point? Yeah. Right? So the issue for Israel here, we've made it all the way to number two on, on five sentences, introducing chapters 9, 10, and 11. But this is an important conversation. I hope you, I hope you don't mind taking this kind of time. Uh, first, issue that Paul raises is God has hardened um, uh, unbelieving Israel. Second, Israel's 
rejected God's righteousness, so he gives them exactly what they want. They, they want law righteousness. They got it. Third, but God preserved a remnant chosen by grace. Paul is part of the remnant. Fourth, God gave promises to the Gentiles through faith. And fifth, thus he will stir Israel to jealousy, bringing them to salvation through faith. And then you have the conclusion, adoration of God's wisdom at the end of chapter uh, 11. So these are the five issues that we're going to address as we go through here. This passage is not really about election. It's about God's relationship with Israel. It is consistent with the doctrine of election, and it's going to create problems, no doubt. Um, But such is the nature of Scripture. Uh, I should expect that there are things in Scripture I don't like. There are things in Scripture that puzzle me, and I, I can't figure out how can God do that and be be righteous. I've, I've just been working for some reason. I don't remember why recently. I was working in um, Joshua, and all the wars... <coughs> Oh, I was in Numbers. That's where I was. That's why I was there. I was. I finished Numbers last night in teaching through uh, Deuteronomy, Genesis to Deuteronomy. So the end of uh, by middle August, we will have finished Deuteronomy and finally finished about two and a half years of work on this on Wednesday nights. But um, I, I, those wars are just. They're hard to explain and hard to even for us as children of God to embrace. How can God? do these kinds of things um, but the the fundamental idea that we have to hold on to here is God is God and I'm not and since God is God and I'm not I should expect him to do some things I don't like or understand, the, or understand. but it's the ones that I don't like that I that, that really probably uh, 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 trouble me but the but the proper response from my point of view, is to say, I know God is right in doing what he's doing, and I will have to wait for clarity to explain this till later. But if he's God, he has the right to do things I don't understand. In fact, everything he does, I don't understand. So let's close with prayer. (sighs) Father, thank you for giving us this time of review. Uh, I hope we've cleared up some issues the training most of us have had in our spiritual lives, especially if we've gone through discipleship ministries earlier in our lives, it's always about memorizing a verse and finding finding the application. What are you supposed to do in light of that verse? And and there's some valid validity in that. You know I would not deny that. But the primary point of understanding Scripture is to understand you. Um and to come to love you as you are and not as we have remade you in our sinful thoughts. And in coming to understand you, you will create in us the righteousness, perform through us the righteousness that our hearts long for. Um, So give us the privilege to live by grace, to live adoring you, coming to know you better and better. And in, in the light of that, seeing more of the likeness of Christ lived out in our lives. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.